I'm your host, Amanda Dave. I'm podcasting from the home of the College World Series in Warren Buffett, Omaha, Nebraska. This is a pediatrician and training podcast, a resource for medical students and residents, and I'm your host. Uh, just a little bit of introduction. Uh, I'm a first-year pediatric resident at the University of Nebraska Medical Center in Omaha. I went to Tulane University in New Orleans for my undergraduate degree in neuroscience and anthropology. I received my medical degree from Creighton University School of Medicine in 2018. This podcast will cover high-yield topics as well as interviews with pediatricians and pediatric subspecialists. If you have suggestions or comments or questions, please feel free to email at amandameraldave at gmail.com. This is a pediatrician in training. Okay, let's get started with our podcast today. Uh, We're going to be discussing irritability as it applies to the newborn, young pediatric patients, as well as older pediatric patients. When I say irritability, I don't just mean being crabby because you haven't had your coffee yet in the morning. I mean an excessive response to a stimuli. This is not necessarily quantifiable, but it can include crying or fussiness that continues despite efforts to comfort. Uh, The etiology of this is that it could be due to a noxious stimuli, a lack of vital nutrients, or being angry or frustrated. Acute irritability could be associated with life-threatening conditions that need immediate interventions. This kiddo could be in shock, respiratory distress, or be having a seizure. Now, if they're not acutely life-threatening, where if it was an acute life-threatening event, you would go into PALS and kind of go through that algorithm, uh, you can, if they look stable, you can perform a complete HMP. Some things to kind of like, before we start on this topic, remember when you're doing a physical exam, do a head-to-toe examination, look for foreign bodies, especially in the ear or nose. Hair could be wrapped around a, the digit or uh, in the male population, a penis. Diaper rash, vaginitis insect bites, stings, corneal abrasions uh, can cause pretty irritable kids. This could also, a kid could also be irritable because they have a fracture or dislocation, or it could be, you know, they are in pain because they've been having, they've been getting a vaccination. Some things to consider on your differential uh, with respect to CNS, it could be accidental or non-accidental traumatic brain injury. They could have concussion or second impact syndrome, brain tumor, hydrocephalus, or brain tumor can cause an increasing intracranial pressure. Now with babies, uh, if you remember back, you can appreciate a bulging fontanelle or increasing head circumference. This will kind of show you that they have an increase in ICP. Older kiddos will not have that because their fontanelles have closed, but they can have headaches associated with increased intracranial pressure. Now kids with meningitis can present with fever or irritability, and in infants associated with irritability in meningitis, there can be lethargy and poor feeding. With respect to uh, accidental or non-accidental traumatic brain injury, now with shaken baby syndrome, that can lead to abusive head trauma. Kids with kids less than two years old, uh, rotational forces can lead to tearing of bridging veins. Blood trauma, not necessarily to the head, but to the uh, thoracic or intra-abdominal area, can cause intra-abdominal bleeding. Uh, another thing to consider on the differential for a kid that's irritable is an acute abdomen. So differentials for this include indisusception, malrotation, appendicitis, uh, hypertrophic pyloric stenosis, neck or necrotizing enterocolitis, hernia, and scrotal pain. I'm just going to kind of briefly give you the high yield on each of those differentials. For intussusception, a kid may appear colicky. They could have vomiting or bloody stools. This pain is intermittent. So as you guys remember from like board questions or shelf questions, the kid will be in like really, really, really bad pain and then it'll kind of subside. Uh, for malrotation with mid-gut volvulus, uh, you could have shock from perforation and the kid will be in pretty substantial abdominal pain and will also be very irritable. 
For appendicitis, that irritability may precede the nausea, vomiting, and fever, uh, and is typically associated with right lower quadric tenderness, if you remember from med school. But uh, as you guys know in kids, the appendix can really be anywhere. For necrotizing anticholitis, think about preemies in their first few weeks of life. They'll have a distended abdomen and bloody stools. For hernia, uh, the physical exam or history and physical will show vomiting, irritability, and pain in the abdomen and groin. And for testicular pain, you can look for torsion or epididymitis. For cardiac causes, myocarditis, SVT, anomalous left uh, coronary artery can all cause irritability. Uh, for non-systemic causes, but more of like a exposure event, uh, hypoxic or ischemic events can be caused by carbon monoxide poisoning or methoglobinemia. Now, if the kid has issues with their electrolytes, including hypoglycemia, hypercalcemia, hypo or hypernatremia, uh, those can all cause irritability as well. Toxins, including heavy metals, drugs of abuse, overdoses, or contact with household, industrial, or agricultural chemicals can also cause irritability. And another thing to always keep on your differential is malignancy. So leukemia will sometimes present with intermittent fevers and irritability. Now, if the kid looks well appearing, you can also think of things like teething, dental caries, acute otitis media, foreign body and ear or nose, GERD, corneal abrasion, a hair tourniquet around a digit or penis like I discussed earlier, as well as constipation. What labs would we be getting in this uh, scenario? It kind of relates to what you're thinking in, along your differential. So if you think it's an infection, you'll get CBC, ESR, and CRP, as well as cultures. If you think it's metabolic or an exposure, you'd get glucose, sodium, so more of that CMP, as well as some uh, you know, other labs, including blood and urine toxin screens, which we'd also get if you, you were considering uh, toxin or drug exposure. For myocarditis, you're going to get serum tropes. And for carbon monoxide poisoning, you're going to measure the carboxyhemoglobin arterially. Now, with respect to imaging, this is also very uh, general information. It would be more specific to your differential. So what you're going to do is you're going to think about where you're coming from on your differential, what potential etiology, and why you would get imaging and go from there. Uh, a specific example I'd like to just provide is that if you consider uh, or suspect that a kid has a corneal abrasion, you'll use a wood lamp to kind of assess for that. Now. Um, some things to kind of be high yield, especially in those younger kiddos, is a kid could be irritable because they have a foreign body in their nose or ear or somewhere like that. We'll discuss more about foreign bodies later, but that's just something to always have in your differential. And then with respect to the hair tourniquet, that's something that I don't really think was necessarily taught super well in med school, but is definitely something to consider, especially in those younger kiddos, where they won't be able to tell you what's exactly going on. But um, if you do a really good physical exam, you'll be able to pick up, oh, wow, they have a bunch of hair around their like second toe, and that's what's causing them to be super irritable. Now, when are you going to admit these patients? So if you have a kid that's less than one month old who's irritable, uh, you're going to do a full workup th considering sepsis criteria or men meningitis criteria. Now, another reason to admit is a child who you suspect has been abused or neglected as well as life-threatening conditions. So if the kid has carbon monoxide poisoning or an overdose or they're hypoglycemic, those are reasons to admit. So you're going to kind of refer to the admitting strategies at your institution. Okay, so let's switch topics a little bit. Uh, previously, we were going to discuss foreign bodies, so let's get into it. This is pretty common in kids less than five years old. Uh, they're at risk from the time that they develop that pincer grasp, so developmental pediatrics, nine months, greater than nine months. 
so we're going to kind of go anatomically, and I'll tell you the high yield, what's going to get put in which location, and then kind of what to do from there. So for kids in the ear, uh, the insects can fly in there, as well as kids can put toys, buttons, crayons, pencil erasers, button batteries. Those are kind of high yield uh, toys and stuff that kids will put in their ear. Kids will stuff it in there. Uh, for insects, they can cry, fly or crawl into the ear canal. For the nose, tissue paper, eraser material, clay, beads, pebbles, candy. Uh, the frequency increases when toy sales increase, if you look at the data. So kind of during that holiday season, kids are more likely to put stuff in their nose. For the airway, uh, kids may or may not have total mouth and tongue coordination. Might, they just might not be neurologically developed enough. Uh, that startle response may lead to aspiration. Usually it'll be like hot dogs, nuts, candies, grapes, uh, toys, or latex balloons. Kids are just like, you know, they're exploring their environment and they are going to put stuff in their mouth or nose or ears. So you just kind of be aware of that as a pediatrician when a kid comes in and they're screaming and or mom's freaking out and you kind of have to think about what age they are and why would they be having this discomfort. So signs and symptoms for the ear. You'll notice either discomfort, discharge, bleeding. Sometimes uh, it'll smell really bad depending on what put and put in there. There'll be oral fullness. Um, kid will be pulling out their ear. They may also have associated nausea, vomiting, dizziness, and coughing. Uh, dizziness may be associated to vestibular effects. For the nose, uh, unilateral nasal discharge is something that's always discussed on board exams and shelf exams. They'll also can have epistaxis or they might just have really, really bad halitosis uh, or bad breath, and it just might be, they might have a unilateral discharge and some really bad breath. For the airway, kid can present with coughing, choking, gagging, or wheezing. Now, what imaging are you gonna get? So if you suspect that they've aspirated something, inspiratory, expiratory films of the airway, it could be high yield. You also get a lateral decubitus, um, and can consider video fluoroscopy in terms of imaging. Just doing a good physical exam can provide the answers a lot of the times too. Uh, if you you know use your tips and tricks to kind of get that kid into position to look inside their ears and nose. And just be forewarned, kids will not necessarily be super happy on your exam when you're trying to go and look and see if that bead's in their ear. Now, in terms of management, uh, immediate removal if the airway is compromised or it's a battery, those are just high yield. Now, if it's an ear, you can do irrigation of non-absorbable substances. So what you do is you take an 18-gauge catheter and you hook it up to a 10 to 20 milliliter syringe, um, kind of irrigate the area. And then you can use alligator forceps or right angle hook to take that item out. Something to be kind of aware of with respect to insect removal, you can use water, mineral oil, or topical lidocaine into the external auditory meatus, and then that'll kind of kill the bug, and then you'll remove with suction or forceps. Now, if it's the nose and you're trying to remove an object, you want to remove it as quickly as possible. You can use endoscope for visualization. Uh, you also want to suggest the use of saline nose drops after removal. And if it's an alkaline battery that a kid shoved up there, you want to use sterile water because obviously the electrical component of that saline nose drop. Now, with respect to the airway, uh, you can do abdominal thrust for removal if it's possible, except if it's partially obstructed. Uh, you can also use fluoroscopy or... Uh, endoscopy to kind of identify that. So if it's in the esophagus, you can use endoscopy to remove. Now, when are we gonna admit these kiddos? Uh, if there's airway compromise, they have post-operative edema, they can't be restrained or it can't be removed, those are reasons to admit. Um, you might have to call it consult surgery in order to have the kid uh, put under for anesthesia and then have it surgically removed. 
All right, well, I think that's enough for today. If you have questions or comments, please feel free to email at amandamerildave at gmail.com. This has been a pediatrician and training podcast.